episode 925 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our supporters on Patreon and the Baseball Reference Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hey, Ben. Congratulations to the Sonoma Stompers, the team that we helped run last season and wrote a book about. They clinched the first half of their season yesterday, which means that they get a spot reserved in the final playoff game unless they win the second half of the season in which case they wouldn't even have to play that so does the stompers success in the first half and it was it was kind of a dogfight it came down to the wire last year we had a very easy first half run but they did not they had to fight it out but they did does their success in any way retroactively influence your opinion of our performance with the Stompers last season? No, it doesn't. I And I don't even know if saying that, I don't even know if I'm saying that in a way that uh, props us up or brings us down because there's still some of our fingerprints on this roster. But I, I just think that every team is its own beast and it's really hard to, you know, every team finds its own way of being good. And last year in the first half, we were good. And this year in the first half, they're good. And I don't think it's uh, it's that simple to tease out what made them good. It doesn't make me any less happy with our success uh, in the first half last year. Uh, and I'm extremely happy for their success in the first half this year. It was a great game. Yes, it was. It was streaming and Sean Conroy was starting and we were watching. Lots of people in the Facebook group were watching. It was not back and forth exactly, but the Stompers kept taking larger leads and then losing those leads, and so it was a fun one. And yes, congratulations to them, and I hope they win the whole thing, and then we have to try to wrestle with what that means in the paper paperback edition of the book next year. Mm. Mm-hmm. So my dad clipped something out of the Wall Street Journal the other day. I don't know what section it was in, but it's a tiny little square advertisement, and it says... Pro baseball team for sale. Club in storied Atlantic League of professional baseball located in large attractive market on East Coast. Team built. Bridgeport. <laughs> it could be Bridgeport. Team built slash price to sell. New owner has ability for immediate success with attractive lease and community. Are you interested? Do you want to go in on a Atlantic League team? If your dad's funding it. <laughs> I'll inquire. I'll find out what team it is. That seems like a good place to start. Yeah, I don't know. Is it is an Atlantic League team? It, with all you know about indie ball now, is an indie ball team a good investment? Do you think at this stage, or is it still rich person's hobby uh, where you expect to to lose money? Well, indie ball on the whole has been thriving and growing in popularity and expanding lately. But I would guess that. Buying an individual franchise is still a worse way to spend your money than, I don't know, putting it in a mutual fund or something. Yeah, I um, there's certainly a lot more players getting signed out of indie leagues than there used to be. And it's uh, becoming more and more a part of the, the baseball ecosystem, the talent uh, funnel, I guess. And if Rob Manfred is telling the truth, and I don't believe he is, but if he's telling the truth about the threat that um, uh, that basic labor law poses to the current minor league system with your you know six affiliates uh, in every franchise, uh, you could imagine that if he's being honest and if teams actually do go from, say, six teams to, to four because of the cost, uh, then that would make indie ball a lot bigger deal. Um, there'd be, first of all, less competition and more talent, uh, but there'd also be a, a whole lot more players going back and forth. You'd have a lot more familiar names and you'd have a lot more player, you know, you'd have, you'd start to have actual, you know, in time, you'd have a lot of major leaguers on rosters probably who 
uh, on their resume have uh, Bridgeport, Bridgeport, what Bluefish was that what they were? Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so it, if that were the case, then it would be uh, a growth market for sure. I don't really believe that's the case, though. But all the same, it's growing anyway. Yeah. Well, someone else wants to buy it and fund a sequel to the only rule. Maybe we could work something out. That'd be different. We could own the team this time instead of being faux GMs for a season. So uh, Henry Druskel, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, wrote an article for Baseball Prospectus earlier this week. And like a lot of his articles, I enjoyed this article. This was about payroll disparities in Major League Baseball and how they're smaller than they used to be. And I don't know how much this has to do with the fact that the average payroll keeps going up. And so if the average payroll is higher, maybe it's harder to have a big range around that payroll or it's harder to have outliers. On the other hand, maybe it's not because teams keep making more and more money and the league keeps making more and more money every year. So the rich teams probably make more of that, although I guess the advanced media money is distributed equally. Anyway, it's a good article about how the ultra poor teams in baseball really do tend to lose more, even though there are exceptions to that rule. And the ultra rich teams in baseball really do tend to win more. And it's not just that they are more likely to have really, really good teams, but that they are very much more likely not to have terrible teams, even though the Yankees are trying to trying to show that uh, there are exceptions to that this season. Even the Yankees are kind of a, an example of that in that they've been putting together pretty lousy teams, and yet they really haven't been bad. They haven't finished below 500 yet. So I thought it was interesting. Henry wondered in the article why it was happening. It seems to be not just this season, but the last few seasons that there's less and less of a discrepancy between payrolls. And he speculated that it might just be as simple as the luxury tax, which is not really a brand new thing, but maybe teams are taking it into account more. And when you go over the penalty for four years in a row, you're paying 50% of everything else that you're spending on top of your regular payroll. And so it's a lot. And you do see teams kind of trying to dip below that to reset their luxury tax threshold. So I don't know if you had any thoughts about it, but I wanted to shout it out and I will link to it. And we've talked in the past about parody and how for a while there, there seemed to be no relationship between spending and success. I don't know if that's held up well in the couple of years since we've talked about it, but there is less discrepancy in payrolls, and that seems like a good thing. Yeah, and the key uh, the key word that you said, I think, is ultra-rich. Uh, there isn't—I I, I don't think Henry was making the case that being a little rich makes you— foolproof uh in you know uh bulletproof yeah. or that a team that spends 160 million is significantly more likely than a team that spends 120 million to be successful and we can all think of lots of examples of teams that have been simply rich uh that have uh that have been woefully disappointing uh, sometimes in in our memories because they were rich because they spent a lot of money on bad players uh aging players because they got caught up in the pressure to win every year and to, uh, you know, and because they did things that hurt their long-term viability, uh, in pursuit of that every year. It's really the ultra is the key thing here. If you are rich enough, you can essentially beat the game. Although only up until a certain point, the playoffs are still the playoffs. Yeah. And he pointed out that I'm quoting now teams in a more moderate spending range with payrolls between 130% and 170% of league average don't enjoy the same guarantees of success that those from 170% and up do. So he was arguing that if baseball could find a way to just bring the ultra-rich teams down slightly into that very rich but not ultra-rich band, then maybe there would be even less of a discrepancy. But things seem pretty healthy in this respect overall relative to where they've been anytime recently. Anything you want to bring up before we move on? Nope. Okay. So I want to do a quick exercise that we have done at least once in the past, and this is building off one of my favorite pieces of research from the past few years. 
which was by Mitchell Lichman, and I'm trying to remember when it was. Was it even, was it last year? It was maybe two years ago. It was fairly recent, and he showed basically that projections really matter for players even very deep into the season. You should continue to trust the projections even when you're sure that some player is doing something differently and he's a different guy than the projection system thinks he is. That's not often the case, and on the whole, your best bet is to bet on the projections. And the projections shift a little, so there are rest-of-season projections, whether you're using Pocota or Steamer or Zips or whatever. They're updated in season, so if you have a crazy first half, then your projection for the second half will be a bit more optimistic than your preseason projection would be. And so Mitchell looked at this, and he looked at even the the guys who exceeded their projections or fell short of their projections by the most in any given year. And your best bet, if you want to project their performance for the rest of the current season, is just to go with those rest-of-season numbers and not try to talk yourself into someone actually being better than he was before. And so we did this exercise I guess it was last year, and at some point in the season, around the halfway point, we looked at the top 10 overperforming hitters and bottom 10 underperforming hitters and did the same with pitchers, and then we just did over or under on their Pakoda rest-of-season projections, and the hook here was that there was no reason to think that we would be better than the projection systems, but we were going to try anyway. And John Chenier, effectively wild official scorekeeper, kept the stats and kept track of how the players did from that day forward. And we were not better than the projection systems, I think, of the... Or or we were were barely better than the projection systems. So we were talking about 40 players, and I was in the right direction on 26 of them, and you were in the right direction of 23 of them. So we were slightly better than chance, but well within the the margin of error there. So I wouldn't say we demonstrated that we have some ability to beat Pakoda. But I think it's a fun exercise because even though I know this is the case for all players put together, it's still very tempting to think that in specific cases, I can pick the guys who will beat the projection or fall short of the projection. So just going to do hitters today, a top 10 and a bottom 10, and maybe we'll do pitchers tomorrow or Maybe we'll decide to talk about something else. But just going to give you the names and the guys who have exceeded their projections by the most this season. And then I'm going to tell you what Pakoda projects for them over the rest of the season. And then we'll do our over or under. And at the end of the season, we'll find out that we weren't any good at it. So making no promises here about our expertise. So going to use true average for this, which is baseball prospectuses all-in-one offensive stat, 300 is good, 220 is bad, 260 is average. So it's sort of centered around the historical norm for batting average. So the number one guy is Daniel Murphy. And Daniel Murphy has a 352 true average thus far this season, obviously one of the best in baseball. And he was projected for 265, so he was expected to be just a little bit better than a league average hitter, and he's been one of the best hitters in baseball. Over the rest of the season, Pakoda thinks he will be a 277 hitter, so he has raised his projected Pakoda performance by 12 full points in half a season, which is pretty impressive given that yeah. he had a, a very long history of being what he was before he turned into what he was late last season. So he has changed Pakoda's mind, but Pakoda still thinks he's just a pretty good hitter instead of a, a great hitter. So 277 is the over-under mark for Murphy. And so Murphy is a guy who had, uh, even before this, um, so had shown some, some seeming growth late last year and also, of course, had his great postseason, which uh, Pakoda doesn't, know about and so that gives us a little extra information that Pakoda doesn't even have uh, and there's a story uh, right. that is told about him growing and the other thing about Daniel Murphy is that 277 is he was above 277 each of the previous two years and he is above 277 for his career 
So that is a um, that's a fairly modest. I mean, I mean, there'd be some aging curve, perhaps, but otherwise, that's a fairly modest projection for him anyway. So I'm saying over on Daniel Murphy. Yeah, I agree. I think everyone has a story, and that's the dangerous thing, as we've often talked about on this podcast. When someone does well, we look for reasons why they're doing well, and people write articles about those reasons. And sometimes they're really the cause of the change in performance. Other times they're just sort of post hoc causes that we pick out because we're looking for some reason other than randomness to reassure us about this being an orderly universe. So remember when Sammy remember when Sammy Sosa's story was that he had uh he had finally gotten a cavity filled? <laughs> I don't remember that one. <laughs> uh yeah, that's a good one. And so yeah, I mean Murphy's is the the Kevin Long method of what moving closer to the plate and trying to pull the ball and trying to hit for power and so he obviously did that in the second half of last season and in the postseason and I agree. It does not seem like a high bar to clear, so I'm going to go with the over on Murphy. All right. Number two on the list of overperformers is Aledmus Diaz. He, of course, started out great this season. He was filling in for Peralta with the Cardinals, and he was just a, a discard last season, and no one really thought any of, anything of him. And then April, he was fantastic, and then he kind of tanked a little bit in May, and then he got a little bit better in June, and then in July, he's on fire again. So overall, he's had an excellent season, and he has produced a 338 true average, which is just the most Cardinals thing that could possibly happen. You lose Peralta, you pick up Oledmis Diaz, who no one wanted and who wasn't good for uh, most of his career even in the minors, and suddenly he's a star. Pakoda is uh, somewhat swayed by this. He's actually quite a bit swayed by this, I guess because he didn't have a big major league sample before the season. In fact, he had zero major league sample before the season. So he was projected for a 252 true average, so significantly below average hitter. And now Pakoda thinks he's better than Daniel Murphy. 279 rest of season true average for Ledmis Diaz. 279 to put that in perspective would be like uh like a 115 OPS plus. Yeah, sounds about right. I'm going to take the under and uh hope that the league has an adjustment uh ready for him. Although I don't really believe in adjustments all that uh -huh. much. But I'm still taking the under. Yeah, I mean I don't know if there's a, a great narrative for why he's a new man. He was not particularly good in AA last season in 400 plate appearances. He was fine, but nothing special. And then he had like 14 games in AAA where he was great. And uh, then he was good in 20 games in the Arizona Fall League. And then he was great to start the season. So... I don't know. The fact that he, when he started to fall off after the April hot streak, then it looked like he was the classic fluky guy and that either he'd regressed or the league had adjusted or whatever, but he's sort of pulled out of that nosedive and become good again. So I'm not sure, yeah. but I don't know if there's a compelling story for why he's great now. So I think I'm going to agree with you because 279 is pretty good. I mean, if if anyone had told the Cardinals that they could have 279 true average Oledmis Diaz going into the season, they would have been absolutely thrilled, I think. And so that's uh that's a pretty high mark for someone with no track record of being able to hit. So I think I will go with you and take the under on that one too. All right. Next up is All-Star Snub and uh one of the most notable, I guess, turnarounds or, or overhauls this season. Jake Lamb of the Diamondbacks, who was projected for a 265 true average, a little bit above average, has been a 340 thus far, and like Aledmis Diaz, is projected for a 279 rest of season true average. 
Hmm. So that's just about, well, it's always going to be this, but that's just about his career to date. Hmm. Jake Lamb, huh? I've been hearing a lot of good things about Jake Lamb in the last week, which is... Uh, so have I. Been testing, yeah, it's been testing my uh, anti-Jake Lamb worldview. Yeah. Golly. 279. Again, 279? Yep. Mm. Over. Okay. I, I'm also going to go over because he's got a good story. <laughs> he is the uh, classic swing overhaul guy. He uh, changed his swing angle and there were mental changes and he did all this different stuff. He looks like a different guy. I guess he's the closest thing we have this season to the Jose Batista slash JD Martinez kind of reimagining as a player. He's doing different things with getting his hands to the zone and leg kicks and he's got everything. He's got all of the stance and swing stuff working for him. I don't even want the swing overhaul though. Like that to me that actually makes it a little worse because to me, like he was a in the minors, he was a 321, 408, 552 hitter. He had a 960 career OPS in the minors. I just want to think he he's always been that good and that it just took a little while for him to catch up to major league pitching. So I the less story the uh-huh. better for me <laughs> on Jake Lamb. Okay. Well he's Doing good things statcast-wise from what I have read. He's doing good things with launch angle, and he's hitting the ball hard. And he had a very good spring training. He hit for a ton of power in spring training. And so people were touting him as a potential breakout player even before opening day. So I'm also going to take the over on Jake Lamb. Wait, you're telling me the guy with 46 extra base hits and a 612 slugging percentage has good stat cast numbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing about his uh, stat cast numbers that don't support the, the slash line. Okay. All right. Next up is Ioannis Cespedes. By the way, I am I, I set a minimum here of 250 plate appearances so far this season, just so we wouldn't get any, any really fru- fluky ones. Ioannis Cespedes is next on the list. He is running a 356 true average right now. And he was obviously great for the Mets last year, but came into the season projected for 284. And that has climbed to 289. I think everyone sort of expected Cespedes to come back to earth when the Mets signed him. I mean, people still mostly approved of the contract because it was a Strange contract with a short commitment, but I don't think anyone foresaw him not only sustaining what he did for the Mets last year, but significantly improving upon it. And he's now approaching his 31st birthday. He'll he'll turn 31 during the playoffs and uh, will almost certainly become a free agent and make many millions of dollars. So, Ioannis Cespedes, are you buying the breakout that is now about a, a full year old. So wait, what's the number? What are, What's the, the, the projection? Number is 289, which is basically what he was in 2014 and basically what he was in the first half of last season. Yeah, basically. And so, uh, but he was even slightly above that then. I am not necessarily a full-on believer in UNSS for this breakout, but... but 289 like he could do 289 and especially if you think that there's anything to the i mean last year was a walk year for him and he had you know one of the biggest second halves in baseball this year is another walk year for him and uh maybe that matters so i'm going over yeah the uh the studies have shown that you know walk year doesn't matter mostly for most guys but you never know could be some guys it matters for so I'm going to take the over also. I didn't anticipate that we would have the same answers for everyone because we didn't last time we did this. And it always seems easy. Like most of these seem pretty easy. Diaz was not easy, but right. the other ones so far have been pretty easy calls for me. And yet I know that even though many of them seem easy, Many of them will also be wrong. Yeah, like Jake Lamb was kind of hard for me, but like I can't even imagine saying under on Murphy or Cespedes, and yet one of them is going to be wrong. 
And I, like, I wouldn't be able to bring, like, even, yeah. even if like I was reading the script for a play and it called for me to take the under, I'm not sure I could even deliver the line. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not sure whether this one will be any easier. Matt Carpenter is the next guy on the list. He is at 352 thus far this year, same as Daniel Murphy, and was projected better than Daniel Murphy, but much worse than this, 283. He is now, like Cespedes, at 289. And 289 is right where he was in 2014, and he's kind of a different guy now. Or I think it's safe to say he's a different guy now because he had all of last season where he hit for power. He hit 28 home runs last season, and that was after hitting eight the previous year and hitting no more than 11 in his career. And then he just suddenly started hitting for tons of power and had 28 home runs, and now he's at 14 through the quote-unquote first half of the season. So he has not only sustained that, but even, I guess, he has done it even more. He's, uh, well, everyone in baseball is hitting for more power this year, but he's hitting for lots more power, and he's also getting on base a lot more. He's just been a monster thus far this year. Easy call. Yeah, easy call. I mean, easy call anyway. Like, even if you take away the fact that he is developing new skills and that he is sort of synthesizing the brilliant plate discipline Matt Carpenter of before with the great power Matt Carpenter of last year, he's got 61 strikeouts and 58 walks right now. He's Joey Votto. Uh, And so even if you take away, though, that growth, it's a 309 career true average. 289 is too low. So I'm taking the over. Okay. By the way, how's your uh, Pakota over-under team doing? Because <laughs> you built a whole contest out of this It is on concept. my to-do list to write about it uh, today or tomorrow. Oh, cool. All right. So you can update us in a coming banter section. All right. So this might be the most difficult one we've had yet. Wilson Ramos. Wilson Ramos of the Nationals has run a 326 true average he was projected for 258, so right around league average, and he has raised that 11 points to 269. And uh, Wilson Ramos has a recent history of being worse than 269. He was better than that at times, but 2013, he was 268, 2014, 250, 2015, 231. So this is kind of coming out of nowhere. So this is our first one that maybe is, well, it's definitely difficult. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm a, I'm a longtime fan of Wilson Ramos, which means that I'm a uh, longtime victim of Wilson Ramos. I, I, yes. So that puts me in a little bit of a tough position. I also want to say an under on one of these guys. <laughs> and <laughs> so I'm going to take the under. I really wish that instead of 269, Pakoda had been like 281 then i'd feel a lot better so <laughs> yeah. i'll take the under you edited the annual comment for him this year which says ramos will be one of the best hitting catchers in baseball if he can just stay healthy ancient wisdom passed down through many generations mm. so there has been a kind of long-standing belief that wilson ramos should be better than wilson ramos was but not this much better so 269 i mean he failed to do that in each of the three last seasons. So that's like uh, 1,100 or more plate appearances in which he did not do that. And he's now about to turn 29. Maybe sometimes catchers peak a little later, decline a little earlier. I don't know. He's a guy who hasn't stayed healthy in the past. So there's no real reason to think that he will be more healthy in the second half of the season than he has been historically. Would you speculate that a catcher who has dealt with injury problems in his career would be more susceptible to a second half fatigue effect or, you know, bumps and bumps and, and bruises? Yeah. Having past injuries is always a good predictor of future yeah i'm not talking past injuries though i'm sort of thinking like all i i think that probably all catchers are a little worse in september than they are in april just because their legs are moving slower and i'm wondering if there's 
if fatigue and, and injury proneness are the same gene or the same uh, characteristic, or if they're if they're separate, and I shouldn't think of it that way. Uh-huh. All right, I'm going to take the under on him, and it might have something to do with the fact that I actually want to have a different answer than you at some point in this episode. <laughs> but I said under. Oh, you said under? Oh, no. Okay, well, I'm saying under also. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, a uh, few more guys on this list. Marcel Ozuna is next, and... Marlins outfielder, 331 true average this year, 268 coming into the season, 276 rest of season. God, I mean, it, like eight points of true averages is nothing. And so to think that we've learned nothing at all about Marcelo Zuna is uh, is hard to, to say out loud. So I, I like I'm not I'm not a buyer. I'm not a believer. But I would have taken the over on 268 before the season, and 276 is barely distinguishable. I might have taken the over on 276 before the season. I, I'm, I might have taken the over on 276 before the season. So it's hard to not take it now. So uh-huh. I'll take the over. Yeah, I agree. And he was at 255 for almost 500 plate appearances last season, and he was kind of jerked around, and there was service time stuff, and there was Loria stuff, and he probably did better than the numbers showed. I know Mike Petriello on the StatCast podcast was a big Ozuna booster coming into this year based on his exit velocity last season, despite his lackluster stats. So I agree. Going with the over. Three more guys to go. Michael Saunders. Michael Saunders, 322 true average this season and was at 261 coming into the year, is at 272 for the rest of the season. Under. Yeah, so I'm trying to think. I've liked Michael Saunders for a while and he's never been able to stay healthy. And that's kind of the thing with him is that if you look at his, you know, limited playing time in. 2012, he was better than 272. 2013, he was better than 272. 2014, he was much better than 272. And last year, he barely played. So it's always seemed like he had talent and that if he could stay healthy, then he would easily exceed a 272. He's never really actually played regularly and not exceeded that, I I guess, you know, going back to 2010 and 2011, he, he did, but he always had nagging injuries of some sort. And of course, he could very well develop a nagging injury any day now. It's not getting less likely that he will do that probably as he gets older, unless the Blue Jays fancy sports science department has figured out how to fix him for good. So if he were healthy, then I think I would easily take the over, but it's very possible that he'll strain something or pull something or ding something and try to play through it and slump and be bad and not exceed it. So I almost wish I could do like a Michael Saunders playing time projection instead of a true average projection. You want to say over and I said under. This is perfect for you. Just say over. Okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'll take the over. All right. Second to last over performer, Anthony Rizzo, who is at 360 so far this season and was projected for only 301, which he has only raised somehow four points. So he is now at 305 rest of the season. Uh, easy over. Easy over. Yeah, he is. I don't know. That's penalizing him for stuff he did when he was 22 and 23, I guess, and he has clearly reached a new level of performance over the last two and a half years. I agree. It seems like Pakoda has been slow to adjust to that. So agreed on over. And last guy, Jose Altuve, 331 true average so far this season, was projected for 273, is now at 284. I mean, again, it's like I'm, I want to take the under on Altuve at this point. But the under ain't 283 or whatever. Like, I, there's just, yeah. you just don't really have a choice, I think. Although, he was two, 285 yeah. last year. And he was a, you know, he was a star last year, too. Yeah. If it were, like, again, it's not a big difference, but if it were 293, probably I would take the under. But 
I am not going that low on him at this point. So I'll take the over. Yep, me too. If we were taking the under on what Altuve has done so far, then we we would do that. But this is taking into account prior seasons of Altuve when he wasn't so good, and often that's smart and it makes your projection more accurate. But in this case, it it's hard to bet on the under there. So it seemed like uh, most of these calls were pretty easy. Diaz was not easy. Lamb was maybe not easy. Saunders was not easy. Ramos was not easy. A lot of the others seemed like no-brainers, and yet of the several no-brainers, I'm sure that uh, at least one guy somewhere in there will prove us wrong. Because that's just the way that this has worked, historically speaking. All right. Looking at the underperformers, the biggest underperformer so far is the Indians' Jan Gomes, who has a 186 true average. And he came into the year projected for 263. That has fallen 10 points to 253. Did this last year. He might have even been on our list last year, perhaps, as an under. I um, don't know. You go first. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, so 253, that's basically his lifetime. He's a 255 lifetime. And, I mean, he was really good. He was a really good hitter. He was a five-win player in 2013 and 2014, according to BP's stats. And I guess that's including some framing runs. But still, he was a, a really good hitter particularly for a catcher. I haven't looked deep into the the Jan Gomes downfall, so I can't say I know exactly what's going on with him, but I suppose I will take the under on Jan Gomes at 250. So it's basically asking us to think that he is as good as we thought Wilson Ramos was coming into the season, more or less. All yeah. right, I... No, I mean, he would have beat this in the second half last year. Last year, he was, you know, close to equally as bad in the first half and, uh, and ended up with terrible numbers for the season, but would have, I think would have beat 253 in the second half, I think. So I will, uh, not that that's predictive in any way, but none of this is. I will, uh, take over on Jan Gomes. Okay. Ben, Ben. Yeah. Baseball reference nicknames for Jan Gomes. These these are okay. these are weird because they they pronounce his name two different ways. The nicknames there are two nicknames and they both suppose a different pronunciation of his name. Right, Obi Yan. Okay, Star Wars and reference. Sure. The Yanimal. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I can't say I've heard of your baseball games. Yeah, I don't know if sometimes you get a weird baseball reference nickname where like it must have been in one columnist's article at one point but no one ever actually called him that i don't know for all i know there's a, a cheering section in in cleveland of the animals or the ob guns but not familiar with that uh, would he get paid more if he went by yanni gomes <laughs> yeah i i think he probably would all right okay next up prince fielder prince fielder at 234 was projected to be a really good hitter at 299, is projected to continue to be a really good hitter at 292. And last year was at, at 289, so you don't have to go that far back. Uh, but I will nonetheless take the under. Yeah, so will I. He he had a decent June, but he is uh, slumped again in July. Don't see a whole lot of reason for optimism there so i agree prince fielder people used to sort of prejudge him based on his body type and then you know people would write articles about aging curves by height and weight and bmi and i guess they said negative things on the whole but there were certainly exceptions to that it wasn't like once you hit 30 if you were a certain weight you were you were a bad player beyond that point but uh, he's had injuries, and so it's not necessarily conditioning-related, although the injuries, of course, could be conditioning-related. Anyway, point is, I miss good Prince Fielder. <laughs> good Prince Fielder was uh, really, really good. Mm-hmm. Next guy, 
Justin Upton, who is at 239 right now, was projected for 289 and has slipped only slightly to 285. Ah, uh, yeah, I wasn't a... It wasn't a big booster of Upton before the season, and it hasn't slipped enough that it makes it easy. Nonetheless, uh, because I know that something like half of these guys are going to end up being overs, uh, I will take over on Upton. Yeah, I mean, he's been better than that in each of the three last seasons, so he's not old. Uh, he's been better in every month. He's got, He was better in May than he was in April. He was better in June than he was in May. He's been better in July than he was in June. Hasn't really been good in any of those months, though. So, uh, all right, yeah, I think I'll go with the over, but that's uh, a tough one. Can I just interrupt real quick, though? The thing about Justin Upton is that he's, over the next five years, he's going to have ten halves, you know, ten first, first or second halves. And in at least three and maybe five of those, he's going to have a true average higher than 284. Like, we are really stuck in the way that we're viewing Justin Upton right now, and it's hard to think that he's tomorrow he's going to flip a switch and be, you know, classic 290 true average Justin Upton. But over the next five years, he's, he's going to do it a bunch. And uh, it's not going to seem weird to us when he does. I mean, just look at Victor Martinez and imagine trying to reevaluate Victor Martinez based on only the previous three months over the course of the last six years, how wrong you'd be all the time. Yeah. And that's like, we don't, I don't think we necessarily give enough credit to how many different career swings these guys have, especially if you consider a swing to be two months or a half of a season. I mean, these guys are constantly getting buried or reviving themselves. Uh, and uh, it all, at the end of a career, it all kind of evens out and, and you, you don't even think about it but like a lot of guys there really are a lot of guys who at who are good at 34 who we buried at 32 and uh, so i'm not that worried about justin upton it's just will this be the the half one of the halves that he does it anyway go ahead right okay carlos gomez 218 to date was at 267 coming into the season is at 262 the rest of the season hmm and so, lat and with the Astros last year after the trade, he was at two forty one, and he was barely above that with the Brewers. So, yeah, they, I guess this is a question of if there's any, if if that was just a short peak, because he wasn't a good hitter, he wasn't a good hitter, wasn't a good hitter, wasn't a good hitter, suddenly was, and now is he just as suddenly not? And to this goes to my parabola theory of baseball careers that uh, most careers are parabolas, and if you're a late bloomer. You're probably going to be an early fader. And uh, Carlos Gomez was a late bloomer with the bat. You could look at that as the manifestation of his tools, and he was finally he had finally turned the corner, and he was going to be a great player now that he knew how to do this one, you know, now that he had figured it out. Or you could say, well, you know, he, he wasn't that good at 25. He probably won't be that good at 31. And I will, um, because it's my theory, I will say under on Carlos Gomez. All right. I mean... At the beginning of the year, I thought he was hurt, and so I definitely would have taken the under, and he was terrible in April, he was terrible in May, but then he had a good June, and he was, you know, he hit 286, 362, 452 in June, and that means more to me in Carlos Gomez's case than it would with some other player, because I just thought he had shoulder issues, or hip issues, or both, and just didn't expect very much, but the fact that he had a full healthy month and played well and hit better than this true average projection, I think, over that month makes me more optimistic, even though he's now slumped again for the, the first half of July. So I think I'll take the over just based on my concerns were mostly health-related and he showed that he was healthy enough to perform at this level for a somewhat extended period. All right, next, Andrew McCutcheon, who was projected for 313, has been at 268, and is now projected for 309. And how's how's his health at the moment? I know that that's a big reason he's been at 268, is he hasn't been healthy 
fully healthy. Was that a temporary thing? Is, is he okay now? Do you know? I don't know that anyone knows for sure. He was pretty circumspect about his health issues last year with the knee, and I don't know that he's been tremendously more forthcoming this year. So I haven't heard any updates lately. He's still playing, and so I guess it's not so bad. And he's so it's from three thirteen down to three oh nine. Yeah, I'll take I'll take the over. Okay, so let's see. So yeah, I mean he had a bad June, good start to July, and where is he generally? I mean he's he's significantly higher than that. Yeah, the last four years before this, three twenty six, three fifty, three thirty, three thirty eight. Yep. Okay. Over. Next, Yasiel Puig who was projected for 303, has been at 258, and is now projected for 297. And, oh man, wow, I was going to say it, that, it, boy, it feels to me like he was good for one year as a hitter. And then I look, and he actually was good all the years as a hitter. He was a lot better than I realized. That's Dodger Stadium for you. Yeah. Because uh, he was 329 his rookie year, 322 his sophomore year, uh, 286 last year, which was widely seen as a huge flop, and uh, and then now this year, so 289. No, 297. And he was over three. It was projected over 300 before the season started. Yep. Mm, you go first. I'm gonna say over. I could very easily see a Yasiel Puig great second half. I don't know. Maybe I'm just. Rooting for him so I can make my pick of Puig in some ESPN franchise draft I did like a year or two ago that no one else remembers. <laughs> Seem more smart in <laughs> ah, retrospect, but right. I had this agonizing decision. I don't even know. I I forget who was off the board. I was picking. I don't even know where I was picking, but I remember that I was choosing between Puig and Nolan Arenado. Those were the two top guys on my board. And this was like starting a franchise. So I was taking into account a little bit Puig's star power and marketing value and all that because at the time he was an extremely popular player, you know, controversial player, but but very popular. He was playing well. And so it was kind of a coin toss, but I took Puig over Arenado and I kind of want that one back. But even more than wanting it back, I want Puig to prove yeah. me right. So uh, <laughs> I, I will go with Puig over 297 i just i don't know as long as he's not hurt i mean he's had injuries at various times but i just thought he was a really good hitter just not purely based on his skills he obviously had skills he had all the tools but i thought he was a pretty smart hitter and a adaptable hitter also and that hasn't been the case this season but so general rule of thumb is if a guy hits 300 one year then 290 then 280 then 270 the average person among us will then go oh well that's a trajectory and project 260 the next year and that that is wrong that in fact you should project something like 285 that that it's about regression it's not about trajectory and um Puig is a guy who is all trajectory right now every year has gotten worse and I'm going to uh, fall for it. I'm going to make an exception to the to the uh, regression assumption, and I will take well because I, he still has to be good to meet it. So I'm going to say under. I'm going to say he will not be. I'm, he will not be good enough. Okay. All right. Last few guys here. Eric Ibar has been 212 this year, and came into the year 249. That has slipped to 243 rest of season. I'll take over. Okay. He was uh, worse than 243 last year with the Angels, but had been better than that fairly consistently before that. Of course, he's getting on in years a little bit, but 243, I'll take the under, I guess, just based on him being worse than that all of last year. Haven't done a deep dive on Eric Ivar either, so just going to go with that. All right. Billy Burns. Billy Burns has been a flop. He's been at 208 so far this year. Was not expected to be good. He was uh, 244 coming into the year, and he's lost six points off of that. So 238 for Billy Burns. I'll take... Boy, <laughs> woke up today with a to-do list that did not include project <laughs> Billy Burns' true average. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not sure Billy Burns is a credible major leaguer, and so I'll take the under. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either. <laughs> so, 238, that's, that's yeah. bad. Uh, that's pretty bad. You have to be bad to not hit 238, but yeah, I don't know. You'd think just based on, like, beat alone and beating out some base hits, he could get to that point, but maybe it's just a case of being overmatched. So I'll take the under on Billy Burns. All right, last two guys. Jose Bautista, 281 so far. Of course, has had injuries, but 281 so far was 316 preseason, is essentially the same now, 314. This is amazing that you're going to have a 281 true average and be on this list. <laughs> yeah. I'll take the over. Yeah, I mean, he had a toe injury. I don't know whether a turf toe is something that really lingers after you fix it and come back. Doesn't seem like there's any real reason to think that would be the case. I would assume that that has been the cause of his poor performance, and he's been so good before that that uh, doesn't seem too unreasonable. I mean, we're saying 314, so he's projected to be five points better than Andrew McCutcheon. He's projected to be really, really good. He sort of straddles that. He hits that about every other, you know, yeah. half the years. It's it's a good projection for him. It's not easy. Yeah, it feels about right. Well, he was 316 last year. He's almost 36 now. He's going to turn 36 in October. I'll take the under, I guess. And last guy... Jose Abreu, who has been at 272 this year, Pakoda expected 306, and rest of the season, he's at 301. I'll take the under on Jose Abreu. Yeah, this feels like another trend line guy. Not that he has that long a trend line at all, but he was so much better in his first year than he was in his sophomore season, and now he's been worse again. 301 is... That's good. So I'm going to say under on 301 also. All right. So we have done this exercise. Again, no reason to trust us over Pakoda particularly, but you can if you want. Hopefully John Chenier will put all of this in the Effectively Wild Competitions Google Doc that you can find in the file section of the Facebook group. And we will see where we end up at the end of the season. And uh, tomorrow maybe we'll do pictures. Maybe we won't. I don't know. But that's it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Today's five listeners who have already pledged their support are J.P. Jafransky, Jeff Fang, Alex Conway, Sean P. Montana, and Aaron Hartman. Thank you. You can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. Go to theonlyruleisithastowork.com to find out more about it. And please leave us a review if you like it at Amazon and Goodreads. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index at baseballreference.com by using the coupon code BP when you subscribe. You can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. Please keep the questions coming. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>